Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Peace by speculation. Hamas tells CNN to expect an imminent pause in the Israeli-Gaza conflict. Crypto calming, digital currency prices stabilize after a day of wild swings and milking the market. Oatly set for a $10 billion IPO, we've got the CEO. It's Thursday, let's make a move. First move, and we begin with the latest from the Middle East. An eight and a half hour lull in rocket fire from Gaza into Israel has now ended. It was the longest pause since the conflict began 11 days ago. Hamas officials told CNN Wednesday that a ceasefire agreement with Israel could be imminent, possibly within 24 hours. Quote Israeli airstrikes on Gaza continued overnight. The Prime Minister says the operation will end when its objectives are achieved. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, good to have you with us. So Hamas are indicating, at least to CNN, that they're hoping that a ceasefire could be imminent within the next 24 hours. What are we hearing from the Israeli side, if anything, on that? I don't know if you could hear just then, Julia, but that was an intercept right up in the sky above my head. Uh, That was uh, rockets being fired from Gaza into Israel. Siren had just gone off very close to us here. Uh, The Iron Dome intercepted that one. Sirens have gone off north of Gaza as well because of rockets coming from Gaza towards towards, uh, Ashdod up the coast. The rocket impacted uh, in Ashkelon earlier. A lot of damage done to a house there. Three civilians lightly wounded today. Um, That ceasefire, uh, yes, when you look at what's happening right now, that ceasefire, if it was a pause by uh, Hamas, that's gone. The Israeli Air Force said overnight that they were targeting Hamas tunnels, that they were targeting Hamas commanders, weapons stores, rocket launchers. And in the past couple of hours, the Israeli Air Force say just a couple of miles in that direction, they've targeted Hamas trying to sort of prepare a new tunnel network. We've seen artillery fire going in that direction as well from, from guns like the ones behind me here. So I I think, you know, where we're at at the moment, we're in this sort of wait and see mode. Is the diplomacy going to work out? Is it not? Hamas sort of paused overnight. But then in the morning, Hamas announced that they'd fired a a rocket launcher type uh, device at an Israeli base near near to Gaza. And they they hit a military bus there. There was no one on the bus, but one soldier was lightly injured. Uh, German's foreign minister is in Jerusalem today, has met with Benny Gantz. The defense minister is going to meet with Palestinian Authority officials as well. We understand the UN uh, representative on, on the on Middle East peace is, is, is having meetings in, in uh, Qatar today. So um, definitely there are the movements and narratives behind the scenes for this diplomatic uh, process. Um, at the moment, you know, 
here in the field, if you're, living, if you're living in one of the towns around here, you feel just as afraid from the rockets as they were before. We were in a town not far from here when the sirens went off and everyone took cover and I talked to people there and they're very concerned about the situation. And the same in Gaza, when they see the airstrikes coming in, they're worried about their situation and their families as well. And I think, you know, a lot of people here uh, wanting and hoping uh, that there's going to be this ceasefire. But uh, one of the Israeli uh, television channels here has been reporting uh, their polling. Hard for us to know how accurate their polling is, but certainly the prime minister will have seen it and the people of Israel will have seen it as well. And that polling, which will drive public opinion, that polling says the vast majority of people still support the prime minister here, Benjamin Netanyahu, continuing, as is said, with actions in Gaza. So that's the sort of that's the sort of backdrop to what we see going on at the moment, Julia. Yeah, and in this moment, Nick, as you alluded to at the beginning, actions like artillery, rocket fire speak louder than words. We await a ceasefire. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that. Okay, we'll bring an immediate to any immediate and um, any news on that potential ceasefire the moment we get them. And the latest, of course, will be coming throughout the day here on CNN. For now, let's move on. And the big story in business today, the great crypto cave-in. Steady on. Consolidation to others, cave-in to others too. Bitcoin looking firmer this session, as you can see, reclaiming the $41,000 level again a day after plunging 30% and then recovering late on in the session. The Bitcoin bulls say we've been here before. It's a healthy correction. The bears say it's all over. And of course, that's what makes markets. The chart, though, says a great deal. The crypto crunch climaxed at around this time yesterday with Bitcoin shedding more than a quarter of its value and then recovered somewhat later. Volatility is the watchword. Bitcoin, meanwhile, not the only crypto to bounce. Ethereum, Litecoin and XRP all higher this session too. The big question now, long-term viability, imminent regulation, the ability to use these digital assets as a method of payment amid such great volatility, not to mention of course, questions about their ability to act as a hedge against inflation. Coming up, Brian Brooks, the CEO of crypto exchange Binance US and the former acting US controller of the currency will give us his take and give us the what next too, if we can answer it. Now, as crypto tries to convalesce, stocks try to stabilize too. This is key. And it was a risk-off day all round on Wednesday. A better picture, though. Meanwhile, in Europe, a mixed day in Asia, though tech stocks are pressured with Cisco off more than 4% pre-market. They've warned, like many others, on chip shortages too. We've also had a warning from the Fed in the last 24 hours as well. The minutes of the last meeting show some policymakers open to tapering talks, so the scaling back of bond purchases if the strong economic recovery remains on course. The question is, when does patience become pernicious? Hmm. Okay, on to our main driver, crypto to the moon or a lead balloon? That is a question. Crash, correction, consolidation or a comeback? Many investors are wondering what next. Bitcoin, as we've mentioned, clawing back some of its losses today, but nearly a fifth has been wiped off the value in a week. And that's also dragged down rivals, too. There is a lot going on in this space. Claire Sebastian joins me now. I mean, look, we're looking at a one month, a one week move there. Claire, just talk us through some of the price action, because I think a lot of investors just sort of struggling to keep up, quite frankly. 
Yeah, so I think yesterday, certainly what, what characterized it was this V-shape that you talked about. It overnight lost about a, a quarter of its value, bottoming out just about as, as you and I were speaking uh, yesterday morning, Julia, at about 31,000. Uh, and then it really just regained uh, pretty much all of that. Now, we know uh, why it fell. There was some news overnight from the Chinese regulators cracking down again uh, on on Bitcoin. We know that the, the news over the past month from Tesla uh, has been sort of negative around Bitcoin. Uh, you know, initially, of course, uh, Elon Musk saying that they were suspending purchases uh, of cars using Bitcoin because of environmental concerns. Then some questions around whether he was holding on to uh, his Bitcoin holdings. Uh, so all of that sort of culminated. There's, of course, leverage, of course, in Bitcoin trades, which exacerbates these moves. Uh, and then why it came back? Well, I think there was some dip buying. A lot of people, a lot of chatter online is about when to when to get in as this this rocket ship continues to rise or as we've seen it rise uh, over the past year. Uh, and also another, we can't do uh, any of these moves without Elon Musk. Julia, another tweet from Elon Musk uh, yesterday, a, a, a diamond and a pair of hands indicating that's uh, along the lines of Wall Street bets, that Reddit group slang indicating that he's hanging on to his Bitcoin holdings for now. So that would have helped that rise yesterday, but still, as you say, down significantly on the week. Yeah, it was quite funny. I got a a tweet from somebody and a text from someone else at the time saying, what does that mean? I was like, I don't know. And actually, we weren't showing you there the tweet that you mentioned. We were showing you another tweet that took place this morning. Just bring that back up now because we've mentioned it. it. It looks like a US dollar, but the figure there is a is a dog. I don't know whether you can see that. It says cyber viking and it also says how much is that doge or doggy in the window uh claire technical explanation yeah. if you can yeah i mean so dogecoin yeah. uh, presumably Doge he's yes he's referring to dogecoin uh you know there was a reaction dogecoin of course you know the the sort of underdog if you will but uh cryptocurrency that elon musk has been uh you know, really supporting and tweeting about and, and talking about on SNL uh, in recent weeks. And he sent the price uh, of Dogecoin, which had been recovering from the broader crypto route that we saw yesterday. He sent that price up six cents on that on that tweet. That's about 15 percent. So clearly this this is a cryptocurrency, perhaps even more than others, that really hangs on his every word. It started as a joke. It needs him uh, as, as a backer. Otherwise, there's very little else sort of there to, to, to trade on. Uh, but, but, you know, you've got to wonder what, why is he doing this? Clearly, he understands that he contributes to the volatility. But then again, if he stops talking about it and we stop talking about it, would the hype still be there? A lot of questions, Julia. A great question, quite frankly. And you know what? Bitcoin, digital assets are far bigger than one person. They are all very individual. The underlying technologies beneath them are very important. But the structure of the market matters too, particularly when you're comparing or comparing it to things like stocks. And we're going to talk about that and perhaps what's required in this market to bring some of that volatility down. It is early, nascent stages of this technology, of this sector in particular. So we will discuss Claire, Crypto Claire. Thank you so much for that. All right, another high-profile CEO of a Chinese tech giant is stepping down. This time, it's Zhang Yimin. He's the head of ByteDance, the owner of popular video app TikTok. And he says he's leaving the role because he lacks managerial skills. This comes after the CEOs of Ant Group and Pinduoduo recently resigned as Beijing ramps up pressure on the tech sector. Paul and Monica joins me with more. Paul, great to have you with us. Um, There's two interesting things here, and I've kind of touched on them both there. One, the fact that this is another high-profile CEO, founder of a tech business that's stepping away at a time when they're under great scrutiny. But And it kind of alludes to the story that we were just discussing. Um, It's also a senior innovator of a business saying, you know what, 
I love innovating. I'm hugely creative. I'm not necessarily the best manager of a business. And that matters. That truth can matter. Yeah, and I, I think to be honest, Julia, it's refreshing to get that perspective because there are a lot of visionary CEOs out there. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk comes to mind, Mark Zuckerberg. Difference between Tesla and Facebook, Elon Musk doesn't have a COO. There's really no one in there to rein him in the way that SpaceX does with uh, Gwen Shotwell. Facebook, you've got Sheryl Sandberg helping to maybe keep Mark Zuckerberg in check every now and then. So that is something that I think is interesting here when you look at the fact that ByteDance and TikTok clearly so much momentum with the amount of social media clout this company has now, the user growth and concerns about whether or not they were going to, uh, you know, not really to be able to operate in the U.S. based on what was happening with the uh, Trump administration's uh, crackdown in China before, uh, you know, the Biden administration came in. I think it's, it's encouraging to see that this particular person said, you know what, I'm going to take a step back and be almost more like what Tim Cook does at Apple. No one in their right mind is going to call Tim Cook a visionary along the lines of Steve Jobs. But he's an operational guru, and that's why Apple is now the multi-trillion dollar company that it is, even though Steve Jobs has you know, not been around for you know, several years. Yeah, you raise some great points. If we hone it back and bring it back to ByteDance here, is much going to change on a day-to-day -day basis? Who will now take over? Yeah, I don't think much is going to change. The uh, co-founder and interestingly human resources uh, officer is going to take over. I would expect that ByteDance and TikTok will continue to try and become an even bigger presence in the global social media race than it already is and potentially you know, get even larger in the U.S. It looks like the pressure on ByteDance to sell TikTok to uh, an American buyer, that's really not necessarily in the cards as much anymore. There had been all the chatter about the Oracle Walmart uh, team, you know, partnering up to buy the assets of uh, TikTok in the US. Not so sure that we need that to happen right now. So I think that this is going to be just another example of a visionary CEO recognizing his strengths and his weaknesses and passing the reins to someone who has more of an operational focus and not necessarily the pie in the sky product innovation focus that uh, the, the founder, co-founder currently has. I was just uh, plumbing the depths of my memory bank there when you mentioned that. All those challenges in the United States of TikTok, it feels like years ago, so much has happened. They want some peace and quiet. Will they get it? Paul and Monica, thank you for that. All right. Let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. At least 13, 113 people, excuse me, have now died from a powerful cyclone that hit western India this week. The storm has left a huge trail of destruction with thousands of homes damaged and access to roads blocked by falling trees. All this is adding further pressure on states already dealing with the COVID surge. Several people also died when a barge near Mumbai sank during the cyclone. Dozens of people are still missing and authorities have launched a massive operation to search for the remaining crew. As CNN's Anna Corrin reports. 
The Indian Navy is continuing its search for dozens of missing crew from a barge that sank off the coast of Mumbai on Monday night as a result of a monster cyclone pummeling the nation's western coast. 188 people have been rescued and more than two dozen bodies have been retrieved in what have been described as terrifying conditions as up to eight-metre waves hampered rescue efforts. Survivors praise the Navy for its heroism. The Indian Navy was a godsend for us. They arrived in the nick of time. We were clinging onto the barge and luckily the life jackets helped us as the water was going over our head. The Navy officials threw ropes and life buoys. We are lucky to be alive. They gave us warm food and medical treatment. The disaster comes as India remains in the grips of a devastating second wave of COVID-19. The health ministry on Thursday said there were more than 276,000 daily infections and more than 3,800 deaths a drop from the global record daily death toll the day before of more than 4,500. As authorities try and tackle the pandemic, they are also seeing a surge in cases of the disease mycomycosis, also known as black fungus, that's been targeting COVID patients. Mycomycosis affects people with a compromised immune system or who are diabetics. The state of Rajasthan has declared it an epidemic, while other states have labelled it a notifiable disease, which means they've alerted the government of the seriousness of the surge. Another complication for a country already reeling from the pandemic. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. All right. Still to come here on First Move. No cow, but wow. Alternative milk brand Oatly goes public at a valuation of $10 billion. After that, infamous Super Bowl ad. Yes, we'll discuss that too. And King Randall's dream. I speak to a 21-year-old activist setting up a school to empower the young men in his community. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're seeing a touch of green pre-market for stocks after three straight days of losses. All this amid continued concern about rising global inflationary pressures. Germany reporting that its producer prices saw the biggest jump in almost a decade last month. Another sign there. Bitcoin also catching a bid after yesterday's wild 30% plunge and partial recovery above $42,000 there. You could also argue that the search for longer-term crypto calm can't be reached without clarity in four key areas. Calm, C, stands for China, and whether it will stand in the way of wider crypto adoption, even mining, as it readies its own government coin. A, stands for action by regulators. Will we see a response to some of the price action? And if it comes, will it help or will it suppress the need for greater innovation and liquidity. And yes, L is for broader liquidity. Unprecedented Federal Reserve support has helped fuel the rise of crypto, but also other risk assets generally. And that's how crypto felt like it traded this week, like a risk asset. And of course, M, Musk, Elon Musk. More Musk, more momentum for good and for bad. Couldn't help myself. Now joining us is Brian Brooks, the CEO of crypto exchange Binance US and the former acting US comptroller of the currency. Brian, always great to have you on the show. Let's start with some of the price action that we've seen this week because I meant what I said there. Crypto, and I use the term loosely because there are a lot of different things in there, traded like a risk asset. And it feels like this is important. Yeah, Julia, you're, you're 
one of the smartest commentators on this, and I wish I could have captured that idea myself. I, I think that crypto generally traded like a risk asset yesterday. But in reality, most cryptos aren't risk assets. Bitcoin is, is really the risk asset, and it's risen a lot in the last 12 months because of the very inflationary issue you talked about. The problem yesterday is we're in a macro de-risking environment because it's not just inflation, but international tensions, questions from China, and a lot of other things that are causing people to, to shed all risk assets. Crypto will recover because inflation is baked into the system, but you'll have volatility along the way for sure. The big difference, and there's a few of them here, and you've mentioned it, and I have too, is that there's differences in what we're talking about in terms of the ecosystem of, of the digital assets that we're talking about. And the names give you the, some of the differences. But it's also the amplitude of movement that we've seen in the crypto space. And that comes down to technical issues. Um, buyers and sellers in the market, the lack of ability to hedge in the crypto space, liquidity. Talk us through this because this is also another vital aspect of what we're seeing here. Yeah, what a great point that is. So if you were to overlay the Bitcoin price movements of the last 48 hours with the price movements of the Dow Jones or the S&P 500, what you'd find is the shape of those curves are very, very similar. The Dow dropped a lot yesterday. So did the S&P 500 over the last several days. So the difference is the amplitude. You know, Why did those markets drop 2 or 3% whereas crypto markets dropped 30%? And the answer to that is because there's a lot more price discovery in, tr in the traditional asset classes. And that's because you have swaps and futures and shorting trades. The problem in the U.S. is that none of the major exchanges have yet been allowed to offer some of those products that would offer more price discovery to the market, which would have the effect of damping some of the volatility. So we need to think really carefully about whether derivatives would help in this space by giving us more forecasting of where prices are going in the future. You have that for equities. You don't have that for Bitcoin at scale yet. You know, it's quite interesting because some people will be looking at this and saying, look, you're talking your book as an exchange. You're saying, look, we need we need more power, more ability to have exchanges to trade crypto products. But you're also saying you want more competition. The risk here is perhaps that regulators come in and say we need to protect consumers. We need to crank, crack down. And actually what you're saying is we need more liquidity, more exchanges, perhaps more degree of transparency. Don't wait on including an ETF product for crypto as well, allow people to trade these in more ways. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And here's the dirty little secret of exchanges, which kind of flips the script, Julia, on your, on your question. <laughs> we, at an exchange, did amazingly well yesterday because when prices are moving rapidly, exchanges get a lot of buyers and sellers. So my exchange traded about $3.5 billion yesterday, which is an all-time high for us. We, we made a lot of money yesterday in transaction fees. But that's not ultimately good for the market because we're not here for the transaction fees. We're here to incubate the foundational technology of crypto. And so even though exchanges do very well when people are rapidly selling or buying, the adoption rate of this depends on people having more confidence in what these networks are that back the value of the tokens. That's what needs to come next. You know, it's quite fascinating because those that were watching will have seen Coinbase and, you know, that's listed. It's the only one that really we can gauge because it trades out there like a stock that was down double digits at one point. So even though, to your point, sort of making hay while the sun shines because you benefit from the volatility, the broader sector took a pounding. Exactly, because think about what stock prices represent. Stock prices don't represent how much money Coinbase made yesterday. They're the market's expectation of future revenues. 
And the future value of these things is not based on one day's price movements. It's based on the long-term adoption rates of the ecosystem. So again, that's what we all have to build here. We keep talking about crypto like it's one thing and it isn't. And this goes back to the point you were making at the top. We have to look at Bitcoin, at uh, Ethereum, at XRP, if we're looking at that. And I'm mentioning the big ones here. We have to look at them as, as different assets that they have different underlying technologies and purposes because otherwise we can't differentiate in the same way that you would look at a, a stock, perhaps an Amazon and say, look, these are the fundamentals of this versus GE, for example. Do we need to be doing that with crypto at this stage as well? Yeah, you know, so, so I get a lot of questions about whether the problem here is uh, crypto infrastructure or, or the underlying tokens or whether it's more about investor understanding. And as your question suggests, I think it's really about understanding. So think about it this way. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I need to get into stocks today. Instead, what they say is, I think Apple's got an amazing new product and I want to buy Apple stock. Or they think, I think the industrial economy is coming back and I'm going to buy U.S. Steel or General Motors. Every one of those stocks represents the prediction about the future success of the enterprise. And in crypto, it's about what's this network going to do. So if you believe financial apps are going to go online, then you're probably going to buy ETH tokens because you think Ethereum will be the platform for those financial apps. If you believe decentralized cloud storage is the future, you're probably going to buy Filecoin because that's what's going to compete with AWS on the decentralized web, et cetera, et cetera. But we still live in a world where most people think crypto is some fungible magic internet money. We need to educate people beyond that because there is real value here, but you have to understand what it is. It's so funny. Uh, as I was talking there, my, my team, some genius in the background showed the relative chart of Amazon versus GE. Uh, there were some winners on them, some less than winners, quite frankly. And I guess that's the same in the crypto space. Some of these digital currencies, some of these tokens are going to disappear. We have to accept that. Some of them are going to be wildly successful going forward. Is that the message? It, it totally is the message, Julia. And we have to be comfortable with that because in America, the reason that we're a developed rich society is because we've allowed people to take risks, to invest in companies, and over time to let those companies be replaced by better companies. So most stocks that have ever traded on the New York Stock Exchange eventually went to zero because their companies got beaten by somebody else. You can think of the great stocks of yesteryear, the international harvesters, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the bank stocks that uh, went away in the 80s. But some stocks represent long-term generational value, and they're still with us. Same is going to be true with crypto tokens. There will be some networks that will be with us in 20 years, and some that you'll never hear from again. The value of the tokens is based on your prediction of which ones are going to be the winners, not dissimilar to the stock market. And so if you're going to invest today, you just have to accept in the interim, there's going to be volatility, and it's going to be big volatility. I, I think that's right. But what I also think of is I think that regulators and politicians of both political parties are going to recognize that price discovery is a good thing. We need our markets to function better. And the best assurance of, in, uh, of investor protection, honestly, is more liquid markets. So if we can have our politicians help by allowing products that bring in more people with more sides of the trade, you'll see less volatility over time. That's kind of inevitable, but we have to get comfortable with the risk tolerance first. I mean, you know, it's great that you're now the CEO of Binance US, but oh boy, I feel like we miss you on the, uh, the regulatory side. But anyway, can't have everything. Brian, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for educating you. us. Brian Brooks, thank the CEO of Binance US there. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. And as expected, the major averages are trying to claw their way back after three straight days of losses with tech 
as you can see in the lead, up some six-tenths of one percent. News that U.S. jobless claims have also fallen to a fresh pandemic low, helping sentiment a little here too. As we've been discussing throughout today's show, Bitcoin seeing a bounce after Wednesday's wild price swings and U.S. companies like Tesla, MicroStrategy, Square and Coinbase that have exposure to the crypto market are all higher in the session so far to early days, but they are higher. Some crypto boosters calling yesterday's sharp crypto drop capitulation. Julian Emanuel of BTIG, one of our frequent guests on First Move, still sees Bitcoin at $50,000 by the end of the year. Okay, let's bring it back to our top story today. Once again, the fighting across the Israel-Gaza border continues into an 11th day. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says operations against Hamas in Gaza will go on, even after the U.S. president said he expects to see a significant de-escalation. John Howard is at the White House for us. John, great to have you with us. Our colleague Ben Wiedemann said to us on the show yesterday that the United States, America holds a lot of the cards here politically, financially, with a number of players involved. This shift from President Biden feels important. It is. Uh, he's losing patience with the extent of this. Remember, a week ago, Julia, uh, President Biden said his hope and expectation would be that it's winding down soon. That was a week ago. It's continued. They tried quiet diplomacy at first, working principally through the Egyptians and also uh, fanning out uh, phone calls and uh, other diplomatic contacts throughout the region. And they simply weren't getting the uh, response from Israel that they wanted yesterday. Uh, President Biden upped the public pressure, uh, upped the private pressure with a uh, fourth phone call to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. We do see the, uh, it does appear that the um, uh, violence on both sides is easing somewhat. That could be because Israel is uh, running out of targets uh, or that Hamas is losing um, the uh, uh, endurance or the willing to uh, endure what it's been uh, going through. In any case, uh, the uh, pressure from both the Biden administration, from France, from the United Nations, from others uh, is rising. And uh, uh, there's a possibility, at least, that uh, we're going to see a ceasefire sometime in the next day or two. We hold out hope for that. John Howard, thank you so much. You're watching First Move. More to come. The world's biggest oat milk brand is now a public company. Oatly started trading on the Nasdaq moments ago after an IPO that valued it at $10 billion. The Swedish company is a major player in the alternative milk market. It holds the number two slot in Europe. We've seen a five-fold sales increase in Asia over the past year, too. The market for dairy alternatives is huge. Sales totaled $17 billion last year. That's around 12% of total milk sales. Joining me is Tony Peterson. He's the CEO of Oakley. Tony, fantastic to have you on the show once again and huge, huge congratulations. I know it probably feels quick to investors, but for you, I know this has been more, more than two decades of work. You're absolutely right. And thank you so much for having me back. I'm, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, almost 30 years, you know, that this journey. So, so we didn't start yesterday or anything like that. You're absolutely right. And uh, talk me through it. So you've gone public now. We know you're on a journey. We've seen huge growth in Asia. Europe's a strong spot. The United States also, I believe, and you told me this last time, your single biggest market. So you've got a lot going on. Oh, 
We do. I mean, I mean, this the, the success we have generated, you know, across three continents in, in multiple channels, reaching uh, more and more people uh, with the idea of just having a better milk out there that is designed for, for people and human beings. And, and, and you know, I think supply has been the, the underlying theme of supply constraints, the underlying theme of a the whole journey. And we're just excited with the, you know, with the proceeds that we're going to get here to be able to expand our production capacity across these continents to, to be able to just, you know, capture the demand for our brand and our product. So, so we are, re we feel really good sitting here with you today. Now I feel super comfortable and good about that. It's probably, I'm sure it feels like a dream. Um, You've openly said, and you just said it again there, and this was going to be one of my questions later on, actually, was that demand is outstripping supply. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about scaling up operations and actually how much of a constraint that is to the kind of growth that you're seeing. What can you tell us in terms of numbers? Well, if you look at the fill rate, which is our ability to 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 ship versus the order we get from grocery trade across our five countries, is seventy percent. So, so you know th that's a big gap that we're going to be able to close now, as we are bringing new capacity on board every single quarter. And if you look at the way, you know, just look at the product range. The Sweden, Finland are the only two countries in the world where we have the full product range due to supply constraints. Now. It will enable us to, 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 to reach more people with various products like, you know, Gertz Sen and, and, and uh, cooking cream and frozen items and all that. So, so um, I, I just think that it's, it's a solid, it's a solid acceleration that has ha, really, really accelerated uh, the last two years, you know, since 2019. We know 60-70% of our, our users entered the space only two years ago, and we know that 40% of our growth is coming from, from new users. So this is driven by conversion, and that's the big difference now versus only a couple of years back. And that's, this, is the, this has been the idea from the very start, 30 years ago almost. I mean, I remember you also telling me that the potential for this is a $1 trillion market. And when you look, and I mentioned the milk market in the introduction, yeah. but we need to be talking about the dairy market in particular, too. I have it on great authority from my sister, actually, that your ice cream is amazing. Um, it's around 3% <laughs> of the, um, the global dairy industry, which I think is, is so important to understand when we're talking about the growth potential. Having said that, I look at the potential for Danone. I know that Nestle's now come in with their own milk alternative. You have a great product, which I think people out there recognize, but you're also facing stiff competition from big brands. How do you handle that, Tony? How much of a challenge is that? Yeah, hey, I mean, we are competing against the biggest company out there in the world, right? And we've been doing that for, for, for many, many years, and especially in, 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 in Europe. But hey, you know what? We are in this space not not just to have a product on on shelf uh, in a category that is growing healthy we are in the space to make the world better to make something that is designed for human beings and better for the planet and that's the distinction between us and many of our competitors that's the reason why we go to work why we wake up you know that reason is so articulated within our company and that is something we're determined to to lead over time Julia, just just look at the the science that we have behind us the things we do in around our oat fractions oat genome and the natural mutations around oats the the, the multiple clinical clinical studies that we made and the research around agriculture i mean it's solid and it's 25, 30 years of experience behind that. So we feel really, really good. And like you said, it's been a long journey here, but we've been persistent. Uh, we've been there. We never diverted 
for our original idea and, and the reason for being as a company, you know. And that is the difference. It's a different mindset. Yeah, it is about the mindset. And there's also the debate out there about whether or not it's healthy. And I know you've actually got the science behind lowering cholesterol as well if you actually drink this drink. Tony, just talk to me very quickly because I have another Correct. question for you and I want to ask it and it refers to the Super Bowl. But talk to me about the health aspects of oh. this. Is it healthier than drinking ordinary milk, cow's milk? Yes, it is. It is for sure. The way we designed this product was to look at the nutritional needs of human beings and not baby cows. Now, that is really, really important. We didn't try to mimic cow's milk or, or, or any other uh, animal dairy alternative. We just tried to make the best milk there is. And, and if you look at the nutritional nutrition composition of oats, you just see that, you know, with the, with the quality of fats, uh, carbs and fiber and the dietary fibers that you mentioned, you know, for heart health and, and the metabolic syndrome, it's all there in the product. So, yes, it is for sure. Now, Tony, you're not just a CEO of Oatly, you're also a singer. And I have to show my viewers uh, who no. may not have been watching the Super Bowl, just a little extract of the Super Bowl ad. Uh, I, oh, I've got to live with that one forever. <laughs> no cow, no, 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 wow, wow, no cow. Now, you also, no, I have to say, produce T-shirts apologizing for that because some people, <laughs> some people didn't quite get it. Tony... Talk to me about the PR of the brand and how you feel about that, because this also uh, no, says something hey. about the brand and you. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's what we do. We're a bunch of people helping other people. That's the way we look at our company, you know, and, and those things that we do. We don't have a marketing department, but we have a bunch of creative people uh, <laughs> creating this distinct personal voice, doing this stuff. And, and that one, I mean... It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to remove that one. I took one for the team. It's there. No. But we did it because, because it stands out. And, and also we knew 100% that people, mo many people are not going to like it. So that's why we did those T-shirts. Just and, and, and during Super Bowl, uh, if you tweeted that I hate that uh, Oatly commercial, we actually delivered that during the Super Bowl. That's how we prepared. <laughs> we were for it. So so that was actually really, that's a lot of fun. And and. Part of our work is to have fun, right? It's an important part of running a business. Yeah, and we're talking about it, and it made you real. The CEO of Oatly, um, with a $10 yeah. billion dollar business. So congratulations. You, uh, you have a great team there, I think. Tony Peterson, CEO of Oatly. Come back and talk to us soon, and yeah. have a great day. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's move on. Coming up on First Move, combating inequality by setting an example you're going to meet King Randall. He's on a mission to steer boys and teenagers away from violence and crime. His story inspired me, and I hope it's going to inspire you too. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It's a driving force in President Joe Biden's nearly $2 trillion American Families Plan, and that's education particularly given the evidence of widening inequality during the pandemic. Well, one community activist is not waiting around. 21-year-old King Randall is the founder of the X for Boys. It's a youth organization in Georgia teaching everything from literacy to car mechanics, skills they may struggle to acquire elsewhere. Just take a listen to some of their video. I'm just grateful and I'm glad that my son got a chance because in today's society we need this 
King taught him a bunch of trade skills. He taught him things that he never thought that he would learn. And being a single mother, I thought that that was an asset, especially with a young boy growing into, you know, adulthood. It has taught me something different from my past. The program has helped me build myself to a better person. And King Randall is now opening a school and he joins us now. King, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you for you having are, me. Absolutely. You are 21, but when you were 19, you just decided, you know what? I'm going to be a catalyst for change. What made absolutely. you make this decision? Um, well, where I live in Albany, Georgia, um, our crime rate and our poverty rates are extremely high. And considering uh, the amount of crime that our young men uh, ages uh, 11 to 17, uh, as well as uh, 17 to 25 were committing, um, I decided that I wanted to get up and start helping because every time something happened in our community, everybody wants to have a meeting, but nobody wants to actually get into the community and work with these children um, who are without fathers, as well as knowing that we don't have any rehabilitation programs for juvenile offenders um, coming to jail. So I'm seeing children going to jail and coming back. Plus, I saw a lot of my classmates. I just graduated in 2017. Some of my classmates have been killed. Um, some of my classmates are in jail for the rest of their lives uh, for certain things you know, that they've done. But it's all because we need male figures uh, in our communities to help our boys uh, become better men. You know, there's so much in there. And I know you've been doing so much. Um, you trained as a chef. You're handy with a car. You decided to teach these boys life skills. And one of the things that you and I have talked about off, um, outside of the TV was that these kids that you were talking to, 93% of them, they couldn't even read. They couldn't even begin mm -hmm. to start helping themselves. And you started a book club. Just talk through some of the ways that you started to try and give these boys skills and how it worked. Absolutely. Well, the first year um, of my summer camp, I ran a summer camp from my home. I had 20 boys come to my house every day. Uh, I taught in my dining room on a small dry erase board. Um, with little to no money. And while I was teaching um, every day, we would read books. And I started realizing that the children were having uh, many issues reading. And so I was starting to ask them to read individually. And some of the children couldn't even read simple like cat and dog. And I'm asking them, how are you guys in the sixth, seventh, ninth, tenth grade? And you guys can't even read a simple book. They couldn't read or write. Um, this was about 12 out of the 20 children at first. Um, and then I realized some of the others couldn't read as well. And I'm just like, you guys are in 12th grade, 11th grade, and you guys read like you're in elementary school. This is absolutely ridiculous. And some of them couldn't read or write at all. Um, so I started a book club uh, to help our young men. Um, we started reading books every week, um, like every week, uh, all through, um, I think it was uh, August to um, December of 2020. And of course, during January, but then COVID happened, of course, um, in 2020. And we had to stop the book club. But we began the book club and we had uh, we got an 86 percent reading comprehension rate because our children were starting to learn how to read. And they were starting to, to get to get the idea of what they were reading, because sometimes children will sound out an entire book. They would sound out an entire sentence and never comprehend what it is that they just read. Um, so actually getting out with the children and being consistent with them um, and taking time out with them on a constant basis. Um, we start to see the development of our children here in the city of Albany. One of the other things that you, you teach, and it sort of caught my attention was, and you've touched on it, the science of manhood. King, mm -hmm. what, what do you mean by that? What's the science of manhood? And I know you have powerful women around you, so it's not about of detracting from the powerful women, but it's the science of manhood. Explain. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I, I'm glad that you said that about uh, women because I have very powerful women um, in know. my corner. <laughs> However, you know, um, 
the science of manhood for me, um, I was raised uh, in a in the hood per se, and but we had uh, four men in our community um, that helped us so much to become the men that we are. I had my stepfather, well, my former stepfather. Um, he helped me so much. He taught me all these skill trades that I know. He taught me how to grow my own food. He taught me how to be a protector of you know the women and the children of the community. Then we had the guy down the street. Um, he and his son, they were they laid bricks. They taught us how to uh, do cement. And they taught us how to lay bricks and things like that. Uh, the guy across the street, he was a truck driver. Um, and I say all these things to say um, all of the men in our community all helped mold me into who I am. And so growing up, I thought that all boys had these things. But as I'm going around and I'm teaching now, seeing as over 90 percent of the children that I deal with have no fathers in the home and seeing how they're declining, I'm, I'm noticing that the science of manhood is extremely important because I learned that from other men in the community. And there has to be men uh, to raise men um, in our communities. And I think that's something we have to understand. So now that these children are getting male figures in their lives and actual good male figures in their lives, I think their lives are starting to change for the better because we have to understand boys will try and emulate the men that they are around, whether that be good men or bad men. And so we see a over influx of them running into bad men in the communities and they're turning into or trying to emulate those men in the community that may be doing drugs, that may be in gangs, that may be doing criminal activity. And we'll say, oh, those children are criminals, et cetera. But we don't understand what led to that point. They didn't have any fathers in their lives. And many of the children, like I said, over 90 percent of the children that I deal with do not have any fathers in the home. You know, I've looked at some of your coverage and, and you do at times get criticism for um, suggesting perhaps that the communities aren't that strong in the African-American communities. You're saying, like, hang around for your families, protect those around you in your communities. Um, your mm -hmm. response to that and to that criticism? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I always say I teach, I teach based off of my experience and what I experienced here in the city of Albany with our children. Um, so, of course, we're going to get criticism. I don't think you're doing any good work if you're not getting any criticism. Um, however, I, I don't really have to respond to that because our children are changing their lives. Um, and that's something that bears witness. Uh, you can disagree all you want to, but as you can't dispute the results. Um, our results are proven um, with our program, and it's going to show that what we believe is important is absolutely necessary because these children are changing their lives. Yeah, and these are tough conversations, and actually they have to be had. And I do want to make the point as well, and I want to talk briefly about the school that you're now launching, because I'm sure you need funding help for this as well. But this is not just about African-American children. This is about Latinx children. This is about white American children. This is about empowering everybody. And I know you right. feel passionately about that. Your, your environment just is predominantly African-American, but you're doing this for whoever needs your help. Talk to me about right. the school. Absolutely. Well, we'll be opening the new Life Preparatory School for Boys uh, this fall. This will be an all-boys school. We will be teaching um, the skilled trades. We'll be teaching automotive repair. We'll be teaching uh, construction. Uh, we'll be teaching. Uh, we'll be doing different sports as well. We won't just be doing football and basketball. We'll try to get the boys into professional gaming um, because there's money to be made playing video games. We're going to get them into uh, professional billers, uh, lacrosse, different sports that our children don't really get into because sometimes um, in the African-American community, we'll consider some sports to be white sports. And I want children to understand that you can go play sports. They aren't just for white people. <laughs> They're for you, too. You can go and play different sports. But also, I want to foster an environment um, for, for children um, that think that they are worthless because that they are not they may not be academically inclined. Um, and I want okay, children to understand. King, I've run out of time. Exactly. I have to interrupt you. I tell you That's what, fine. if anyone has the X Factor, my friend, you do. Come back and talk to us when it opens, please. King Randolph. Founder. Absolutely.
of the X for Boys. Great work, my Thank friend. You. you are an inspiration. Thank That's you. it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.